This episode is sponsored by Lloyds Banking Group, serving Britain's communities and households for more than 250 years. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, talk to today's trailblazers. My guest today was born in Strasbourg to Turkish parents. She moved back to her homeland after her parents separated, spending her teenage years in Ankara, Madrid and Istanbul. She went on to study for a degree in international relations, a master's in gender and women's studies, and a PhD in political science. Her writing is in both Turkish and English, and she has published 18 books, 11 of which are novels. Her work has been translated into 54 languages. She moved to London over 10 years ago with her family after one of these novels, The Bastard of Istanbul, led to a trial for insulting Turkishness. While she was eventually acquitted, she is now in a self-imposed exile in the UK. From here, her novel, 10 Minutes 38 Seconds, in the strange world was shortlisted for the Booker Prize. Her work has become known for focusing on identity, minority groups, and breaking barriers on race, nationality, culture, and gender. On the controversy her work has attracted, she has said, I learned to pay attention to the readers and not to the madness, because to be a writer in Turkey is a bit like being kissed on one cheek and slapped on the other. My guest today is Elif Shafak. Um, did, what did I get wrong? Nothing, nothing. I'm very happy. It's perfect. <laughs> Thank you. That rarely happens. <laughs> um, so Elif, many thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate it. You're dialing in. I think we're both in London. That is correct, yes. So taking social distance to, to new measures here. <laughs> to begin on this podcast, we like to begin by just starting a bit about your early life. And a question we ask everyone is, would you describe yours as a happy childhood? Wow, what, what a tough question, actually. You know, it sounds simple, but I think it's a really difficult question. And I really appreciate that you started this way. Um, to be honest, I don't think it was a happy childhood. It wasn't, maybe on the surface, it, it didn't look very tough but I think in many ways psychologically at least from time to time it was an unhappy childhood and it was a lonely childhood I was a single child raised by a single mom a working mother and partly by my grandmother and I thought life was very boring so that's how I discovered books and that's how I discovered Storyland because it seemed to me much more colorful and much more real than the life I was living now, you mentioned there, obviously, moving back to Turkey, and I wondered, um, you're, you're very young, I understand, when you, when you were in Strasbourg with your parents. So were you very conscious of your change in circumstances and moving to what you described as, you know, a conservative society when you did go back to Turkey? I was very young when my, my, when my parents separated, but then for them to get legally divorced, that took some more years. So there was that kind of limbo for a while. And there was a huge contrast when I look at the, the life we must have had, because I don't have too many strong memories of that, but it somehow affects us, I think, in the long run, whether we do remember it or not. So that first house that I was brought in was full of immigrants, leftist students, very idealist, almost all of them, always talking about revolution, smoking gloires, you know, reading Jean-Paul Sartre, but not so much Simone de Beauvoir. That's the environment. And then when we came to Turkey, we came to Ankara, because for my mother, it was motherland. For me, it was a new country altogether. And we came to my grandmother's house in the middle of Ankara. And this was an extremely conservative, extremely patriarchal and inward looking um, neighborhood 
where I felt like we were the old ones out, you know. I, I never felt like I fit in there. But it also gave me a chance to maybe understand and observe and feel attached to oral culture, women's culture. Through my grandmother's world, I came to love maybe the world of um, folk, you know, culture and, and lots of other things that are not necessarily part of written intellectual life in Turkey. So there's a part of me that maybe wants to bridge written culture and oral culture. Can you talk to us a little bit about your grandmother's world? Um, I read that you would call your grandmother mother in Turkish and your and your mother big sisters. So she she clearly was a a very big presence in in your upbringing. So what what was her world like? How did it differ to what was outside the house? Yes, indeed. I used to call my mother abla, which in Turkish means big sister. And my grandmother had a big impact on me because this is the woman who raised me until I was 10, 11 years old. But I need to also explain to you that when we came back from France with my mother, my mom was a young woman, single woman, who had dropped out of university for love because she thought love would be enough. You know, she just followed my father to France where he was having his PhD. So by the time she came back, she had no diploma, no money, no career, nothing to rely on. And usually women in such situations are immediately married off, usually to someone older, because they're not that favorable in the marital market anymore. And this is what people were trying to say to my grandmother. Oh, she has to get married. She has a child. You know, she needs a man to look after her. And it was my grandmother, my more traditional, my more Eastern, less educated grandmother, because she had not been allowed to have a proper education for being a girl. She was the one who interfered and said, no, my daughter should go back to university. She should have a career. She should have a job. She should have her own path in life. Whenever she wants to get married, she can always do that again, but it won't be an obligation. It will be a choice. And in the meantime, I'm going to take care of my granddaughter. And this is what they did, these two women. So my mother, off she went, and I stayed with grandma, and she raised me until, in a way, my mother found her feet. And then she became eventually a career diplomat, but that happened much, much later. So in a way, would you, might be the wrong word, but you had a rather, I don't know, I suppose, feminist, women-empowering upbringing, even though where you were physically in terms of geography would have suggested otherwise. Indeed, and I think I part of the reason why I'm, I, I'm a big believer in sisterhood. I think women need to empower each other, support each other, women from different age groups, from very different backgrounds. Why? Because I've seen the impact of that. When my grandmother supported my mother, the impact of that kind of solidarity went beyond generations. It did not only change my mother's life, but it also changed my life and probably my children's as well in a positive way. So particularly in patriarchal, extremely patriarchal societies, but to be honest, I think patriarchy is universal. So it's not something that's happening over there in the Middle East. Um, Sometimes when people think, you know, act as if you need women's rights or human rights or freedom of speech in those troubled lands or liquid lands over there, but not so much in the Western world, I oppose to that. I think we need to worry about such things everywhere in the world. But obviously, in a country like Turkey, patriarchy is much more intense. And I think it makes a huge difference when and if women support each other and empower each other. 
And did you, just final thing, I suppose, when your grandmother, because I'm talking about moving to Madrid, but do you think your grandmother was conscious of the impact she was having on you by doing these things? Because you mentioned the fact that she was very much a traditional woman, if you think about the West and the East. So I, I wonder if she, if she realised by kind of looking after your mother in the way that she did that, that she was setting this in motion. So there's something very interesting about that generation. And I think it's the same here in England, in Ireland, you know, it, I, I really think it's universal. That generation, they've gone through so many hardships. And I think they almost had this instinct that you try to give your children a better world than the one you have inherited from your parents. If you can do that, you know, then that's, that's progress. If we each can do that, that's progress. So my grandmother had that kind of approach, like I have to do better. Hopefully my daughter's life will be better than mine. Her opportunities will be more than mine. And in many ways, I think I wrote a little bit about this in this manifesto that I published this year, How to Stay Sane in this World of Division. I think that perception is changing today. Like we became a bit more pessimistic, understandably, as to whether tomorrow will be more advanced than yesterday. But that generation had that kind of faith that if they work hard and if they invest in their children's education, tomorrow could be, would be brighter and better than yesterday. We don't have that, that kind of faith anymore in, 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 this, in this strange world. <laughs> no, there's often a sense that things can only get worse. Or... Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Particularly after the past year. But now I think things have to get better. So it's <laughs> very changing. Now, you moved to Madrid with your mother age 10. And suddenly you, you attended what I think you described as a posh school in, in Madrid. And you've spoken of the fact that wasn't a very happy experience. And I was wondering... Could you talk us through your experience at the time, moving from there to suddenly this school? Oh, I, I was so miserable. I mean, I was I was bullied constantly and I just didn't fit in. I was this um, extremely introverted. I, I am an introvert by nature, very shy, silent child raised by a grandmother, traditional grandmother. And all of a sudden I find myself in a very posh British school surrounded by children from all nationalities and it was there that I started thinking, well, it's almost like there's a hierarchy of nationalities. It was very cool to be Dutch, for instance. Nobody ever thought anything bad about being Dutch. Turkishness was heavier. Um, at the time, of course, in Turkey, I'm talking about early 1980s, a military uh, coup d'etat had happened. There were horrible human rights violations in Turkey. And of course, all of these were covered in Western press. Around the same time, a Turkish terrorists had tried to kill the Pope and of course Spain had covered this news and I remember at, at Eurovision Song Contest Turkey for instance that year had received zero points so I would go to school and all the children would be making fun of me and, and I didn't know how to deal with that kind of maybe bullying but basically it got me thinking who am I who are we as human beings are we our nationalities do we have collective identities do we have individual separate personas? I mean, separate from collectivistic identities. So I think I started thinking about nationalism, national identity, belonging and questions like that from an early age onwards because of all those experiences. Yeah, no, I find it really interesting, the idea that from such a young age, you would associate, oh, Dutch, uh, Swedish with a, a more positive reception. If you're surrounded with children from all nationalities, it was like, like a mini UN 
But then you realize there's a hierarchy within that UN. So at the time, unpopular nationalities, as you see, so you're thinking Dutch, Swedish, popular, unpopular, Turkish, any other countries it was bad to be? Of course, definitely. I mean, there were other kids coming from different parts of the Middle East, from different you know, parts of the world who must have felt, who might have felt similar things. But I think in my case, in addition to all those biases, stereotypes, prejudices that I had to deal with, personally, I myself, because I was an introvert, I didn't know how to cope with all that. Maybe someone else might have coped better. So I went within, I traveled within, and this was something that I was accustomed to because of the, you know, the solitude, the loneliness that I already inhabited from my early years. So in a way, I think books became my friends. And books kept me sane. Books gave me a sense of continuity, center that I might have lacked otherwise. And I always felt happier when I retreated into Storyland. And that's how everything started. I started writing little pieces of fiction, poems, diaries, journals, mostly out of loneliness. And what age did you start writing then, all your stories? Because I've read about a notebook you had back when you were at home with your grandmother. True. And I started actually with a notebook that my mother gave me because I was constantly talking to imaginary creatures around me, like many children do, I guess. But in my case, maybe I took it to an extreme. So my mother thought it would be healthier for me to start writing. And it was good, good advice. So um, the only thing is, because I thought life was boring, you know, normally when you have a journal, you write about things that you have done, right, on that specific day. So whereas in my case... I didn't have much to write when it came to reality to write about. So instead of writing about real people or things that I had done, I started imagining people who didn't exist or things that hadn't happened. In other words, what I'm trying to say is between keeping journals and starting writing fiction, it was a very, very short distance for me. And I found myself uh, soon afterwards in the in the terrain of fiction writing, of the art of storytelling, literature. I started writing at an early age onwards, almost from the age eight onwards, but not because I wanted to be a novelist. I didn't know such a thing was possible. I didn't know you could dedicate your life to to books, to literature. I just had this almost existential need for stories. That's how it started. So when did you realize it it was a viable career and it was a career (laughs) to to begin with? Because you studied... uh, in Istanbul, but you went to America, didn't you? Yeah, I went to America. I started publishing my stories. Um, The first novel was published when I was 24 years old. But that doesn't, again, mean that you you realize this could be a career. I, I still am not sure whether writing is a career because it's almost like your whole life. You know, you write during the day, you write during the night. It's not like, in a way, nine to five. It occupies so much space in your life in your heart in your mind so um, for me I think it's how I live how I perceive life but of course to understand that this is what I want to do in life that takes time that takes time and, and it's 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 a journey I went to America after I had published several books in Turkey I had I was living in Istanbul back then I had fallen in love with Istanbul and I think anyone who reads my work will probably see that Istanbul is very present in my writing, not as a decor, not as a background scenery, 
but as a she persona, as a, as a, as a strong personality. And I think I will carry the city with me wherever I am. But that said, I also felt a bit suffocated there as a woman, as a writer, and I felt the need to leave the city. So I went to America. And in America, I lived in Boston, Michigan, and then Arizona. Uh, in each of these places, I wrote different books. But basically, I think the biggest change for me back then was I started writing in English first. Um, now, you mentioned your first novels began when you were in Istanbul, when you were in Turkey. I just wondered, uh, could you talk us through what it's like getting your first novel published, uh, the, the work you have to do behind the scenes, perhaps to make people feel better about their lives, the number of rejections beforehand, if there were any? <laughs> the, the interesting thing is, um, because I didn't know anything about the publishing world, right, I had no idea. All I knew was I had this story inside me that I wanted to write about, I was passionate about, and I wanted to see it on paper. So that is an amazing freedom that sometimes we lose as years go by. Because sometimes writers start worrying about, oh, what will my you know, critics think? What will editors think? How will people perceive? When you are that young and when you're writing your first novel, you, do, you don't have any of those questions in your mind. You just write, you just go for it. So it's a sense of freedom I try not to forget. I try not to lose as much as I can. And I was genuinely, of course, very, very surprised when this um, important publishing house in Turkey, they gave me a call. I had a long chat on the phone with the editor who had loved the book. And from then onwards, I kept publishing uh, novels. I think where my heart beats is, is fiction, always. Now, when it comes to your novels, I think the gaze is widely seen as what brought you a wider audience in terms of your, your initial pieces. And then I suppose the novel which is often talked about in terms of controversy is The Bastard of Istanbul, which was long listed for the Orange Prize. Um, and it addressed the Armenian genocide, which is denied by the Turkish government. You were then prosecuted on charges of insulting Turkishness. Did you see that coming? Uh, you mentioned, for example, the fact that when you're a writer uh, and you have your first novel in the early stage, you don't worry about, or you don't even think about receptions in the same sense. So I wondered, by this point, were you, were you aware that what you're writing could trigger a response like this? I was not expecting anything like that. Of course, you do expect some kind of criticism. You do expect that some people won't like it. But this kind of reaction was completely unprecedented. Also, maybe I need to explain that in Turkish constitution, we have this Article 301, which unfortunately protects Turkishness against insults. That's the claim. But nobody knows what that means. You know, nobody has ever a clue what that means. And precisely because of that, it's very open to misinterpretation. So Article 301 had been used against historians, intellectuals, journalists, scholars repeatedly, but it had never been used against a fiction writer for a work of fiction. So this was the first case. In other words, the sentences from my novel, the, the, the words of fictional characters were plucked out of the, of the text and used as evidence in the courtroom, which created a very surreal situation because my Turkish lawyer had to defend my Armenian fictional characters in the courtroom. And that went on for about a year, during that which time there were some nationalist groups on the streets burning EU flags, spitting up my pictures accusing me of being the pawn of Western powers, 
you know, all, all that madness went on for more than a year. And in the end, we were acquitted, me and the fictional characters. But still, I had to live with a bodyguard for more than a year and a half. So it was, it was really surreal because it's, it's a work of fiction we're talking about. And I, I also want to add that, of course, Turkey is a country with a very rich and long history. But that doesn't mean we have a strong memory of the past. I think it's a society of collective amnesia. And it's very difficult to talk about the past in a nuanced way. There are lots of ruptures, voids, and usually those ruptures are filled with either ultranationalistic or Islamist interpretations of history of a glorious past that I think never was. So we're, we're unable, it's very difficult for us to talk about the past in a more nuanced way. And yeah, the idea of a, when you say the sentence that your fictional characters were acquitted, it 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 feels approaching nonsensical. But I see I see what you mean, of course. So during that period, I mean, how did you first find out that they were going to ultimately, you know, take you to court for this? Did you read about it? Were you in, instructed? Did they get in touch by phone? I mean, it's what what they do is a prosecutor. They start a trial. I mean, it, it it's it was it's not the first time. Even last year. After my latest novel, 10 minutes, 38 seconds in the strange world was published this time, again, a prosecutor started an investigation, which didn't go further than that. But this time the accusation was writing about sexuality, writing about gender violence and, and issues like child brides. And I think the reason why I want to mention this is because people usually, of course, do know that it's difficult to write about political issues in a country like Turkey, but sometimes people don't know that it's equally challenging to write about gender equality, women's rights, or um, sexual discrimination and gender violence. These can also be very difficult subjects. So all I'm trying to say is you can all of a sudden, if you're a writer, find out that you have offended someone for any reason, for whatever reason, it's so easy to to offend people in a country where there isn't, where there's no proper democracy. Is this one of the reasons that you decided to move to London? The censorship, the fact that you could be on the wrong side of the law for writing fiction? Uh, partly and mostly yes, because I think as a writer you need that freedom. It's incredibly important freedom of speech. And uh, also, I was writing already in English. It had been many years now when I started writing firstly in English. So what I've been doing for the last maybe 15 years or so is I write my novels in English first, and then each and every novel is being translated into Turkish. And then I take the Turkish translation, and in a way, I rewrite it. So it's a very strange process, and it takes almost twice as much time and it isn't something you could do if you don't like language. I love languages. I love paying attention to words, maybe even words that can't be translated immediately from one language to another, because that says so much about the culture, not only the language itself. Um, and I, over the years, I, I realized if my writing has melancholy, longing, maybe sorrow in it, I find these things much easier to express in Turkish. But when it comes to humor, which is very important for me, and also irony, satire, I find these things much, much easier to express in English. So writing in English gave me another zone of existence, maybe another breathing you know, room and space. 
That too was one further reason why I felt freer to write here in this country. Looking on your writing so far, is there a particular piece that you're the most proud of, whether it's the impact or, or just actually your own writing? That, that's a difficult question because in hindsight, I think when I look at my books, I realise each and every one of them was so different. Of course, there are some central threads that you can see maybe underlying you know, themes, but nevertheless, stories, in terms of stories, they're, they're completely different because... I'm a curious person. I love learning. I see myself as a student of life. And I think books change us. You know, they change, hopefully they change something in their readers, but they also change their authors. You're a different person when you start writing a book. By the time the story is over, something has shifted in you. So I've learned a lot from each and every book that I have written. But if I have to make a choice, I think I will always choose the book I'm yet to write. Um, now, I want to talk about the book that you have coming out later this year, I believe. But as you shall, so just a few final questions, really, in terms of the present day and reflections. One thing I, I wondered was, you talked about the impact of your grandmother and your mother in terms of who you are today. I wondered, what about your father? Has he had an impact, do you believe, on your writing? You did not have a relationship uh, as close as the one you had with your uh, I suppose, the maternal figures in your life? Um, my father and I were very, very disconnected. And actually, it took me long years to understand that and understand the impact of his absence on me and my writing. So in an indirect way, of course, he had an impact on my writing, but through his absence, not his presence, because I had to deal with that absence. And I also had to deal with inside my psychology, I think I had to process the fact that he was a very good father to his other two sons because he got married again and he had two children out of that marriage. And he was a very good father, he was a very good professor, he was a very good intellectual and very much loved by his students. So it was very difficult for me to process how such a good person could forget his first child. I could not put those pieces together for a, for a very, very long time. Had he been a bad person in my mind, maybe it would have been easier for me to, you know, find an explanation. But it was harder to explain because he was a good person. And as I said, he was a good father to his other children. So probably through all that questioning, existential questioning, he had an impact. But other than that, it was, there was a big rupture in our relationship. Uh, it took us many years to connect again towards the end of his life. I'm, I'm happy to say we were able to connect again and, and I'm happy that, that he had a good bond with his grandchildren because that to me was important. Um, you mentioned his grandchildren, your children. You live in London now with your husband and your children. How have you found writing during lockdown in the city? Uh, has it been a good for creativity or in a way... I think you imagine this world where you don't really have many interruptions because you can't be distracted and it could be a good time to focus, but it could also be unnerving. I think it's a very unnerving time for all of us. And earlier in the year, actually, I read um, some comments on social media shared by some publishers with good intentions, but they were saying this is not as hard for authors as for other people because writers are solitary creatures anyhow. They're used to working on their own. They're used to working at home. So it's not much that much of a difference for a novelist. 
But I disagree. I think it is a huge unnerving experience for all of us and, and writers are not immune to that because suddenly you find yourself questioning what am I doing? You know, is this the book that I should be writing now? Is this the story that I should be focusing on now? Does it really matter if I find the perfect synonym or if I move that comma to the next sentence when people are dying in, in their hundreds and thousands and when everything is upside down and when there's so much inequality out there? So I think it's a moment of it's rethinking. We all, all of us, we have some serious rethinking to do, whether on an individual or collective basis. And I honestly think we cannot go back to the way things were before the pandemic, because the pandemic exposed, not created, but exposed the existing fractures in our societies, in our lives. And there's a lot of rethinking we need to do in terms of our values, societies. Uh, how do we achieve more equality? diversity and inclusion, all of that uh, matter a lot to me. And has this influenced your new book? It's going to release this year, The Island of Missing Trees. Is that something you're working on during the pandemic? I think the pandemic um, influenced and shaped this book in so many ways because it brought me closer to nature. And I, like many people, I started to appreciate more even seemingly small moments of daily life, like sitting under a tree um, quietly, being able to just walk in the park, things that you take for granted, you do not take them for granted anymore. And I started reading extensively about trees and plants and environment. I've always been interested intellectually, but this time it became a much more emotional attachment. And this is a book in which, which takes place in two islands, both Cyprus and the UK. And it's a book that deals with family traumas, the past, the maybe stories and silences we pass from one generation to another. But it's also a book in which trees or the absence of trees and what happens when a whole ecology or environment is destroyed, what happens then? All of these questions have become so, so important. So I'm sure the pandemic had a huge role in making me more appreciative of nature and particularly of trees. Yes, I, I now know every corner of my local park, in a way. <laughs> that was not the case a year and a half ago. We were talking just before we started recording about the flow of information these days. On the day that we're recording, we have the Brazilian variant. As apparently in the country there are six cases, but one case has been not tracked down. And it is interesting how things that we would never previously thought about, or even specifics on viruses, science, suddenly, I think, dominate your average person on the street's mind a lot more. What do you think about this flow of information and do you think it is changing how we go about our days? So you might remember, until not that long ago, there was this extreme emphasis and optimism about how important information, the flow of information was. They even called our age the age of information and early 2000s was a time of optimism when particularly tech optimists, were telling us, thanks to digital technologies, we were going to see the spread of democracy everywhere, that this was the triumph of liberal democracy. And if you gave people enough information, they would definitely make the right choices. Now, fast forward, uh, things didn't go as planned. And now we know, I think, that information, when, it, when there's too much information, and, and let alone misinformation, 
We cannot process it. We do not know how to process it. So basically what I do is I make a distinction between information, knowledge, and wisdom. I think we're living in an age in which we have way too much information, less knowledge, and very little wisdom. And what we need to do, in my opinion, is to change this ratio. We need less information in our lives because too much information, first of all, may, gives us the illusion that we know the subject. You know, when was the last time we ever said, I don't know? We forgot to say, I don't know anymore. Because if, you, if anyone asks anything that we don't know much about, we can just Google it. And in the next five minutes, we can say a few words about that subject. But that doesn't mean we have the knowledge. So it's wiser, I think, to make a distinction between information and knowledge. It also creates a fatigue, too much information. And it creates apathy and numbness in the long run because we feel like, I can't deal with all this, right? So less information, but more knowledge. And by knowledge, I mean we need to slow down. We need more books, in-depth analysis, proper, you know, good journalism is so valuable for democracies. You know, I come from a country where I've seen what happens when the media is destroyed, democracy is also destroyed. So I have huge respect for journalism. We need good journalism. But then ultimately, I think we need wisdom. And for that, we need emotional intelligence. We need empathy. We need stories. So in my opinion, we need to put more, much more emphasis on knowledge and wisdom rather than information. How do you think we do that? You mentioned books in a world where news feels as though it's 24-7. Mm-hmm. Clearly the pandemic, I think, has made things more acute. We have press conferences every other day giving us new information. And as you say, we're suddenly digesting information about variants without having much pre-knowledge in terms in terms of for example sequencing and we also have social media which means things can fly really quickly do you think it's a individual choice we all have to make to kind of step away slightly there are individual choices but when i what i mean by stepping away is not becoming disconnected it's not becoming you know indifferent or aloof and actually i would warn against doing that because especially when we read people like Hannah Arendt, if there's one crucial warning that they have repeated again and again is that, that we should not be atomized individuals. Things can go really bad when people are disconnected like that. When you read the memoirs of survivors, of people who have gone through the darkest stages in human history, including the Holocaust, almost all of them are saying something similar. They're saying, you know, that... The, the opposite of goodness is not necessarily evil, that the opposite of goodness is not necessarily unkindness. They're saying the opposite of goodness is actually numbness. If enough number of people become numb or indifferent to each other's pain or to each other's sorrows or lives and stories, then lots of horrible things can happen in countries and societies. So I think it's very important that we remain engaged individuals, active citizens and also active digital citizens. And to have norms, democratic norms, all across the social media is incredibly important. Today, social media is full of abuse and most of that abuse is sexist. So if you happen to be a women writer, a women journalist, you get, or a women politician, for instance, you get even much more abuse. There are lots of things that are wrong and need to be fixed. But the way to fix them is not by becoming disconnected. All I'm saying is reading less information on social media, like less scrolling up and down, 
but reading more books, reading more in-depth analysis, and basically slowing down, not rushing our judgments. To me, that seems very crucial. Now, I just have a final two questions. I'm done. Um, The first was just, you spoke about the impact Istanbul has had on you, the fact that you love it as summer to be, but at times it felt claustrophobic. Now you're in London, is there any particular places that you'll go in the UK that remind you of it? You know, if you are feeling homesick? Beautiful question. I... You know, I I really love London and I think I, I consider myself a Londoner now after more than a decade. And I cherish, and I know it sounds like a cliche to many people, but I cherish, I treasure the fact that this is a city that has a very diverse population. I cherish the fact that people are not living in ghettos or isolated communities. I think we need more interaction among communities, definitely. But compared to many other cities in the world, there's much more interaction among different ethnic, cultural communities. That is incredibly important. I think we need more equality. We've seen that with the pandemic. I mean, if you're living in a poorer neighbourhood in London, your chances of contracting the virus and dying of the virus is almost triple, you know, three times more than someone living in a wealthier neighbourhood. These are serious issues we need to address. And overall, I think I love the, I love the fact that in, if you love culture, if you love urban space, if you love history, if you love diversity, this is really the right place. So rather than pointing out to one single neighborhood, I think what I love the most is just walking just along the streets and also the parks to have green spaces, but also streets with their own graffiti, with their own wall writings, Uh, with their own cosmopolitan, diverse heritage. All of that is very, very close to my heart. Now, the final question is one we ask everyone on this podcast, which is simply, what is the worst piece of advice you've ever been given, whether you ignored it or took it at the time? Mm, I've been given lots of bad advice, actually, (laughs) throughout my own journey. But there's one I I never forget. It was by, by a senior male editor and I was a very young aspiring author or writer I was you know trying to become a writer in Istanbul and the editor said to me that if you want to become a writer you should only and only be interested in fiction and in nothing else so you know don't be interested in history or philosophy or political you know philosophy which I think is a horrible horrible advice a writer is someone who is curious and we can be interested in everything and anything from neuroscience to cookbooks, you know, to, to, to philosophy, to dance, because anything that's part of life is part of fiction. So I did not keep his advice. Instead, I wanted to move in a more interdisciplinary way. And I'm glad I did not listen to him. Brilliant. Thanks, Alif. And thank you for listening. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. And if you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any other many podcasts, please do get in touch. Just email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk